We're going to be uh, continuing today, chapter 22, considering religious worship in the Sabbath day. Uh, now, there's no small amount of confusion that naturally comes with this doctrine or this, uh, this chapter, is there? Especially over the course of the last 150 years. There's all kinds of concerns, and I think rightly placed concerns, about is there a threat perhaps of legalism, a threat perhaps of importing too much old covenant into the new covenant? Baptist or Baptistic type people, uh, especially after about the 1830 or 1840s when dispensationalism uh, rose and spread and influenced everything so rapidly, uh, began to see a hard line drawn between the Old and the New Testaments. And so that changes the way that we're thinking about some of these things. Uh, I want to offer for you uh, the, the doctrinal logic of, our, of the broader Reformed tradition, as well as, uh, more narrowly, uh, the Puritan tradition, which is what's articulated ultimately in the Confession. Now, uh, it does deserve to be said that uh, the juicy part that many of you, I'm sure, are online for now on the Sabbath is really just two paragraphs at the end of a much longer chapter specifically dealing with religious worship in the Sabbath day. And really, this is the first chapter that is teasing out the principle that we saw in chapter 21, specifically concerning Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. So chapter 21, if you have your confessions, you can look back there. It says at the beginning of paragraph 2 that God alone is Lord of the conscience. He has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it, which is essentially to say that we are only permitted to bind one another, to bind ourselves, to bind our churches to what is contained explicitly in God's word or is there by necessary inference. Okay, that was established all the way back in chapter 1. So a new section of the confession has begun in chapter 21, specifically concerning Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And it's not a mistake that chapter 22 immediately follows concerning religious worship. Chapter 22 on religious worship is all about protecting Christian liberty. It is all about guarding Christian freedom. It is against binding Christians in any way that God himself in his word does not bind them, which is really true freedom in Christ. And so this chapter in particular is going to lean, as, you know, as we go through it, you're going to notice that it's going to lean on a number of more foundational doctrines that have gone before it. I've just mentioned chapter 21, specifically concerning Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, but it's also going to reach all the way back to chapter 1 on the doctrine of Scripture, chapter 2 on the doctrine of God. It's going to get to chapter 6 or chapter 4 on the doctrine of creation, chapter 6 on the doctrine of the fall, chapter 7 on the covenant, and especially chapter 8, Christ our mediator. There's only one way to offer acceptable worship to God, and that is through Christ alone not by any other means. And so, as I've said before, we want to we read the confession not just top to bottom as if every chapter is isolated from the others, right? It's not a bag of marbles, each marble a doctrine independent from the others that we can take in and out and replace and add at will without affecting the others. It is an organic body of divinity, of theology that is interconnected. And so we want to read the confession not just top to bottom, we want to read it left to right. 
And so we're going to try to do that a little bit tonight as we consider religious worship and the Sabbath day. I just mentioned to you, or let me just give you the outline. We're going to begin, first of all, you'll notice in chapter 22 in paragraph 1 with the rule of worship. What is it that regulates our worship? We're going to consider what's referred to often as the regulative principle. Second paragraph, we're going to see the object of our worship, namely to God alone through Christ alone. In that third through fifth paragraph, we're going to see the elements of worship. What are those elements strictly subscribed by God's Word that God binds us to, not just individually, but especially when we gather as a church? Well, that's going to be prayer, word, and sacrament. And those are going to be covered in those three paragraphs. We're also going to consider the place of worship. Is there a particular place? Do you remember the Samaritan woman talking to Jesus? Where am I to worship? On this mountain or in that mountain? Jesus says there ain't no particular place. You worship God through me in spirit and truth. I am the truth and the spirit will illumine you to that. Okay? So we're going to talk about the place of worship. And then finally, the day of worship. Defining a day and keeping the day, paragraphs 7 and 8. As I already mentioned, chapter 22 is built on and is teasing out the principles of chapter 21 on Christian liberty. If you notice in your footnote on page 1, Dr. James Renahan gets to the heart of it. He says, while this may not be evident at first glance, the nature of worship and observance of the Sabbath command are directly relevant to the matter of freedom, since Christ has purchased freedom for believers, and God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Therefore, only practices authorized by Scripture can be properly employed in worship. When we consider the various worship wars that are happening in the evangelical world, when we consider the circus that appears on social media and elsewhere, of things that happen on stage, of things that happen out in the pews, we are, we are really arguing uh, ultimately for what does God permit His people to do? What kind of worship is He most pleased with? Does He tell us what that is? Are we permitted to, to do whatever we want as long as God's Word doesn't explicitly condemn it? Or... Is God more narrowly defining appropriate worship than that? I'm going to argue in paragraph 1 on the rule of worship that God's word alone regulates worship. Read that first paragraph with me. The light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and he does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared and loved praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. We see, first of all, in this paragraph that, that uh, the worship of God is revealed in nature. There is a God. He deserves to be feared and worshipped, except here's the problem with what God has revealed in nature. There's nothing explicit on how we're to worship Him, of what this God really is like, personally. And so that's the reason why in the second half of the paragraph, see that but there, but it's contrasting the first half of the paragraph. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him and it is delimited by his own revealed will. 
Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any other way that is not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, I want you to notice two things. That the right worship of God, that there is a God, He deserves to be worshipped, is revealed in nature. But more than that, it's regulated by Scripture. Specifically, it is according to His own revealed will. Put your finger right there, and I want you to go all the way back to chapter 1. Because this is essentially using the framework of the opening paragraph. The Holy Scriptures, it says, are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence, recognize that phrase, light of nature, so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. In other words, we see from Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. We see, for instance, in Jeremiah 10:7 that all of the nations offer worship. We see in Romans 1 that, that in everything that God has created, He's revealed His invisible attributes and His power. And yet man, post-fall, after sin came into the world, has suppressed the knowledge of God. So it's sufficient to reveal that there is such a person as God, but it's not sufficient to save much less reveal to us God's will. But notice what it says. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church. And that was done through the scriptures. That he condescended to speak. It's been inscripturated. So we have all that we need in the scriptures to define what acceptable worship is and what is unacceptable worship. Notice there that, first of all, the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by Him and is delimited by His own revealed will. In other words, two things stand out. It is divinely instituted and it is divinely limited. Let me put it another way. God doesn't merely care that He is worshipped. God cares how He is worshipped. The whole of the scriptures are a testimony to God revealing not only that he cares how he's worshipped, but in instructing his people on exactly how to do that under the old covenant and even under the new. It also means that it is divinely limited, that God draws boundaries about what is permitted and what is not. And everything outside of what is permitted is not permitted because God has told us explicitly what it is that he demands. And so a couple of examples, for instance. Or I'll put it this way. Idolatry in the Bible can be defined in two ways. Idolatry can be, on the one hand, the worship of the wrong God. We see that, for instance, uh, condemned in the first commandment. But idolatry can also be the worship of the right God in the wrong way. We see this example, don't we, with the golden calf in Israel. There in Exodus 32, 33, 34. There we see that uh, Israel is intent to worship this calf that has emerged out of the fire as Yahweh. This is the God that has redeemed you from Egypt. Worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Or perhaps even more... Provocatively, you remember Nadab and Abihu at the beginning of Numbers. They approach God's throne in a way that God has not commanded. 
offering, quote, strange fire. And you remember what it did? The fire jumped off and incinerated them. And so God not only cares that he's worshipped, he cares how he's worshipped. And that informs the second point. Idolatry is not just worshiping the wrong God. It is worshiping the right God in the wrong way. It is to worship him according to human imagination or inventions or suggestions of Satan or through visible representations or any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And that is the heart of the regulative principle. The regulative principle says all what's answering this question What then is permissible in Christian worship? It is, it is only that which has warrant from God's word, either by direct command or by necessary inference. So a direct command, as we'll see in a little bit, will be preach the word. We don't get to not do that because God's commanded it. Necessary inference is going to be something that we take multiple passages, infer logically the meaning from it, such that it could not be otherwise, and then apply it in the context of worship. So, baptism in the Lord's Supper in gathered worship would be something that's applied in the context of necessary inference. We are inferring from the scriptures how God cares to be worshiped. So it is that which has warrant from Scripture alone, either by direct command or by necessary inference. It is divinely instituted and it is divinely limited. That is what we would call the regulative principle. But moving on to paragraph two, we also see not only the rule of worship, but we see also the object of worship. That God not only cares that he's worshipped, but he also cares how he's worshipped, and he cares that he alone is worshipped. Notice this. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Now, obviously, the... The authors of the Confession, following Westminster and Savoy, are going after those Roman superstitions of praying to saints or even in orthodoxy of icon worship and other things like that. None of it can be permitted in an acceptable way in the worship of God's people. No, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. All of our worship is through him by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and it is given to God alone. And so it is offered to God alone. But secondly, it's offered through Christ alone. Since the fall, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation other than Christ alone. Why is God speaking in his word necessary for worship? Because we cannot glean from what God has created that acceptable worship comes through Christ alone. God has to reveal the gospel. And of all the things related to it in the person and the work of His Son, the man Jesus Christ. And so we need to see the gospel in the scriptures. We need to see that it is offered through Christ alone, not by any other means. Jesus says, if you pray anything in my name, that the Father 
hears you and will give it to you, that we approach the throne of grace with confidence, Hebrews 4, because we have a great high priest who has given us open and free access. There is no access apart from Christ, such that any worship that doesn't center ultimately on Christ and through Christ to the glory of God is not acceptable worship. It is a worship that profanes and blasphemes the name of God. All acceptable worship comes through Christ alone, by faith alone, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see now the elements of worship in paragraphs 3, 4, and 5. We're going to see in paragraphs 3 and 4, specifically addressing prayer, and then in paragraph 5, word and sacrament. Read along with me. Beginning of paragraph 3, prayer with thanksgiving is an element of natural worship and is so required by God of everyone. But to be acceptable, it must be made in the name of the Son. See how the, the chapter is building on itself logically. By the help of the Spirit, according to His will. It must be accompanied by an understanding, reverence, humility, fervor, faith, love, and perseverance. Prayers with others must be in a language that is understood. Let's camp here for just a few minutes. I want you to notice, first of all, it's universal obligation. Let's look at a handful of verses, a handful of passages. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, the psalmist says. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and make joyful noise to him with a song of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he has made it. In his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is a call that is given from Israel to Israel, but is meant to reverberate beyond Israel to the nations. All those who should know God ultimately as their creator. Such obligation is laid on all men everywhere. Israel was a witness to this fact according to God's revelation. Notice Psalm 65. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. And so there is something built into man, the very law of God, built in his heart that knows that he is compelled to pray. Is this not ultimately the seed of every false religion in the world, that there is such a person as God, that he deserves our worship, that we should talk and pray to them in a way that is acceptable to that God? Everything outside of the revelation of God in Christ through the Spirit is unacceptable, profane, and idolatrous, but underneath it all is an impulse built into God's image bearers that they're to approach such a person as God through prayer and worship and reverence. It's at the heart of every, every human religion, profaned religion. And so acceptable prayer is a universal obligation. But it is acceptable only through mediation. We just saw that, John 14, 13 and 14. I just made reference to it a minute. But John, John 14. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We see elsewhere that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. But whose prayers does he hear? Well, he certainly hears the prayers of sinners, but he hears the prayers of those sinners who have been robed in the righteousness of Christ and now who alone have free and open access to the throne of grace 24-7 without end. They'll never be turned away. They'll never be reproved. They will always find help in their time of need. Only in Christ are our prayers accepted. God hears all men's prayers, but accepts only those that are in Christ. Christ is the one that perfumes our prayers. And so he is our mediator. Not only that, the Spirit, Romans 8, intercedes for us. Groanings that are, that are too deep for words. Are there not times where we just don't even know what to pray? We know we're in Christ. We know we have free and open access, but we mumble our way through it and praise God that he knows what we need before we even ask, such that his very own Spirit he is the one that intercedes for us. Praise God for that. Can you imagine what your life would be like if it was dependent totally on the efficacy and the beauty and the verbosity of your prayers without the interceding help of the Spirit? Praise God that He provides us with that help. But thirdly, notice there is definition that it is according to His will. How can we know that we're praying the will of God? Well, that's an easy answer. We pray the Word of God. When we pray the Word of God back to God, we can be confident that we're praying the will of God. That's why when we gather together as a church, we want to pray the kinds of prayers that we find in Scripture. And as we do, we want to pray Scripture. In our prayer of praise, we want to always, as you follow along in your bulletin, notice that we're trying to offer praise back to God that speaks truthfully about who He is from His Word. Same thing in our prayers of confession or lament or our pastoral prayers. We want to pray God's Word. That way we can be confident that we're praying God's will. 1 John, look at this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. His will, first and foremost, is that we would come to Him through Christ, and He hears us. But in Christ, by the perfuming and interceding ministry of the Spirit, when we pray God's Word, we can be confident that we are praying God's will. And so pray the Word. Fourthly, provides motivation. It says, it must be accompanied... By reverence, humility, fervor, faith, love, and perseverance. That word perseverance connects to the idea of hope. That even when you can't see it in front of you, you keep on running because of the promises that are before you. So we see it's faith, love, and hope. Hope manifesting is perseverance. Keep on praying is what it says, and that's what the Spirit strengthens us to do. And then it says, finally, prayer with others must be in a language that is understood. And here it's primarily talking about public prayers that are made. Now, I don't think in context they're specifically talking about 
uh, private prayer languages or speaking in tongues, though that may be an implication of it, as you see there in 1 Corinthians 14, that's the proof text. What they have in mind specifically in their own context is the Roman mass where prayers are being offered in Latin and nobody knows what's being said such that they might be able to amen or agree with it. He says, no, they need to be prayed in such a way that it's understood. That if, that if 1 Corinthians 14, a stranger were to come into your midst, that they wouldn't hear a bunch of, of gibberish and they wouldn't hear a bunch of confusion. What they would hear is the word of God clearly preached, clearly prophesied, clearly prayed, such that they are able to hear it, repent, believe, look at the church and go, surely God is among you. That's what they're meaning here. That's why that proof text is so important that we want to pray intelligibly in the common language of the people with whom we gather for their benefit, that they might be able to approach God through Christ with us as we pray. It's not only acceptable prayer, but we see in the second part of that paragraph, paragraph 3, or rather in paragraph 4, that it's also limited prayer. There are boundaries to it. Certain prayers we should make and certain prayers we shouldn't. It says here that prayer is to be made for lawful things and for all kinds of people who are alive now or will live later. But prayer should not be made for the dead, nor for those known to have sinned the sin that leads to death. In other words, we pray for people that are living because their estate is not yet fixed. And so we pray. We pray that our brothers and sisters would persevere. We pray for our lost friends, neighbors, and family members that they would be brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel. We do not pray for those who are now dead and fixed in their eternal state. And this is a rebuke of the Roman church. But notice lastly, we do not pray for those known to have sinned the sin that leads to death. That may be a little confusing. What are we talking about? It's a gloss of 1 John 5.16. You should already have your Bibles open there. 1 John 5.16. Look at what he says. John writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin, though, that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin... But there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, he's talking about saints praying for other saints. If you know of other Christians that have sin in their life, pray for them, that they might be restored through repentance and a life. But secondly, he's saying that there is a sin that leads to death that you should not pray for in this context. What is that sin? It is, I take it, and I think this is what John is saying, it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the full-throated denial of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Look in context, chapter 5. He says, this is he who came, verse 6, by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Christ has come. Who is the one that ultimately testifies to the reality of the person and the work of Christ? It is the Spirit. For there are three that testify the Spirit and the water and the blood. That is the Spirit and Christ, His life and His death. And these three agree. And we receive the testimony of men. The testimony of God is greater. 
For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. That whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That is, whoever believes in the Son of God has received the testimony revealed to them by the Spirit from the apostolic gospel, and they have believed the truth. And yet, verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Who do, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. The testimony of the Holy Spirit testifies against him because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So what he's saying is those who blaspheme the testimony of the Holy Spirit are those who deny that eternal life comes through Christ alone. Earlier on in the book, you remember what he says about those who would deny the gospel? They appeared to be of us, then they go out from us, but they were never, I just butchered it, but they're never of us. What was it? Was it? Well, I'm going to butcher it. Let's go and look at it. I had it in my mind. John's just too poetic for my simple mind. Chapter 2, if you find it. Here we go, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Speaking of antichrists, those who oppose Christ and the gospel, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might become plain that they are not of us. They are those who have been handed over for judgment by the church, anathematized for preaching the gospel that was once and for all delivered, for rejecting and contradicting Christ and the revelation of the gospel in Him. Now, what John says in 1 John 5 is you are not to pray for them as you would pray for a brother because they're not your brother. They are not Christians. Even if they say they are, you hand them over for judgment and you don't pray for their restoration, not in the way that you would your fellow brothers and sisters. You hand them over for judgment and you entrust them to God. And so John is being really careful to recognize what the unforgivable sin is, I think. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as he testifies of Christ. Is that not what the Pharisees did? What did they accuse Jesus of performing his works in? What did they say? In the power of Satan. They were blaspheming the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ, attributing the work of God to the work of Satan. He goes, you're on the edge of the precipice, and there's no way back from that. <coughs> if you're so hardened your heart that you've reached that point, you may be at the point of no return. You are under God's judgment at that point. John says the same thing. And so have you, forgive, have you committed the unforgivable sin? Many Christians worry about that. If you are not one who, is, who has rejected the revelation of Christ in the gospel, denied that he is God's son, denied that salvation comes through him alone, then you have not committed the unforgivable sin. You are just a sinner, just like the rest of us, and you need grace, prayer. and you need prayer. And so we pray for one another. Well, that leads us to paragraph chapter 5, word in sacrament or paragraph 5, rather. And here we see the proper elements of worship. So we just had two paragraphs on prayer, 
and now we've got word and sacrament. It says here, the elements of religious worship of God include reading the scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as well as the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They must be performed out of obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. We see no less than four things in this paragraph, that we are to read the word, we are to preach and hear the word, we're to sing the word, and we are to see the word. On your own time, you can look up those passages. If you've gone through our membership class, then we've, we discuss these in full. So that when we come together and gather as a church, what do you see us doing? Every Sunday, Lord's Day, when we come together, we read, preach, sing, and see the word. Why? Because that's what God has commanded. And we are not permitted in any way to bind anybody else's conscience through participation in anything that God has not explicitly commanded in His Word or made necessary through direct inference from Scripture. We don't have the freedom to do that. That is to bind people to things in worship that God has not bound them to. It is to destroy Christian liberty and it is to undermine or corrupt a conscience. And so we want to read, preach, sing, and see the word whenever we gather. But there's also some other times, even outside of when we gather, where there are purposeful acts of humbling with fasting, or according to the older confession, solemn fasting, and times of thanksgiving that should be observed on special occasions in holy and religious manners. So the Puritans, for instance, would always, in the appointment of new elders, encourage the members of that church to fast and to pray. This is a solemn and sober decision that the churches have to make concerning the godly leaders of their church. Likewise, there may be prudential times of thanksgiving when we come together. So, for instance, next April, we're going to celebrate our 10th year as a church. That's a decade, and God's been really kind to us. But even as we do, though the, though the getting together and, and, and giving of thanks for everything that God has done is not necessarily prescribed by God, everything that we aim to do when we do that honors God by not going outside of the boundaries of His Word. And so even in these prudential and occasional gatherings, we want to honor God according to what He's prescribed in His Word. That's what they're saying here. The proper elements every time we gather, read, preach, and hear, sing and see the Word, and then occasionally for times of, of fasting and of times of, of uh, thanksgiving, they need to be done according to God's Word. Of course, what should be obvious here is that God's Word is regulating everything. And the minute that we add anything to it or put our own inventions up alongside it, then we void the Word of God. We trample men's consciences and we destroy Christian liberty. We see that evident in the sixth paragraph, the place of worship. We're going to see it negatively defined, and we're going to see it positively defined. It says here that under the gospel, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now restricted to or made more acceptable by the place where it is done toward which it is directed. Now, this is obviously a rebuke, for instance, of Romanism, of coming to the... Ch of, of, uh, 
coming to the church buildings, coming into the church buildings and directing your prayers toward a specific altar or a specific place, or even perhaps praying through windows that are strategically oriented or altars that at the time in the Roman church were strategically always facing east. Why? Because as you pray to the altar, you'd be praying to Jerusalem. And they say, listen, none of that makes your prayers acceptable. Under the gospel, Christ alone makes your prayers acceptable. Not where you pray or how you pray. It's through whom you pray and to whom you pray and in whom you pray. That is to God through Christ by the Spirit. That's what he means by under the gospel. There's no prescribed place. There's no prescribed direction. And so where is it that we can worship? Was this not a relevant subject even just a few years ago when we went through COVID? And we're trying to think well about the tension between gathering together as a church and especially those early weeks of, well, what exactly is going on? What is a pandemic? Is this a pandemic? Well, we don't want people to die. We want to preserve life as God's law commands us to do. How do we think about this? And so what did we do? We moved our gathering from inside the building to outside the building. Was our gathering somehow less pleasing to God because we gathered on the back 40, in the grass, under the sun, with tarps and tents and folding chairs. Well, the confession summarizes Scripture's teaching well. Absolutely not. It was God's people gathered under God's word and around his table, worshiping him in the power of the Spirit through Christ alone. Where we do it is irrelevant. Now, there's, it's prudentially wise when it's 108 degrees outside, it's really nice to have a place, isn't it? The point is not that there's not prudentially wise places to gather. The point is, is that where you gather or what direction, geographically or otherwise, you aim your worship has no impact whatsoever on its acceptability. Is it on this mountain or is it on that mountain? Is it this way or is it that way? No, no, no. Young lady, it's through me alone. It's by spirit and truth. But it's also positively defined. Look at this. Instead, God is to be worshipped everywhere, in your home, at your work, as you go, daily in each family and privately by each individual. Also, more formal worship is to be performed in public assemblies. And these must not be carelessly or deliberately neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls us to them. Now I want you to notice a couple things. There is informal worship and there is formal worship. There's the kind of worship that we do daily in our families and privately as we aim to and give ourselves over to the worship of God in everything that he calls us to do. But there's, a, there's another kind of formal worship that can be performed only and exclusively in public assemblies. That is when the whole church gathers together. And this is an important nuance, I think, especially for evangelical Christians today. We tend, I think, not to see the worship of the church as really being any different than the worship that we give God any other day of the week except we do it with other people. It's one of the reasons why perhaps the day itself is diminished, but also why, for instance, the gathering of God's people 
is not seen as something that is special or unique or perhaps is something that can be habitually neglected as long as I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying or I meet in my small group every week. You realize there is something distinct and unique and special that happens when God's whole people gather together under the word and around his table as we aim not only to preach and hear God's word and to pray and sing his word, but to give a testimony to who it is that represents Christ in the world through baptism in the Lord's Supper. That there is, in a sense, let me just show you this. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. This isn't one of the proof texts, but it kind of helps drive home the point. 1 Corinthians 11. And here we have in 1 Corinthians, this part of 1 Corinthians, it's all concerning the corporate worship of the church. Beginning in verse in chapter 10, going all the way to chapter 14, it's always when you gather, when you come together, that's the emphasis. And it's no different here. In chapter 10, Paul says, when you come together and you eat, you need to recognize that the cup of blessing, verse 15, or 16, that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so when you come together, you've got to recognize that the Lord's Supper is what makes the many into one. Right? Baptism brings the one into the many. The Lord's Supper makes the many into one. That's the point of chapter 10. But then I want you to notice this, chapter 11, verse 17. But in following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better or for the worse. When in the first place you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. You've divided it. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, if the Lord's Supper, if the table is where the many become one, and any subset of this church is enjoying that supper at the expense of any other member of that church. Verse 33, not waiting for others. Then he says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're just eating. Go home and do that. What is it that makes the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper? When the whole church, all who are able, present, and willing, gather together around the table. Wait for one another. This is why in our own church, we don't do the Lord's Supper in small groups. It's why when I marry someone, I won't allow them to take, I won't officiate. They can do it if they want, but I won't officiate a wedding in which they take the Lord's Supper at the expense of their church. It's not the Lord's Supper that they're eating. Now, if they just want to share a meal for sharing a meal's sake, then we can do that. So even just using 1 Corinthians 11 as an example, there is something unique and special that happens when the people of God gather together under his word and around his table that doesn't happen when we don't. That doesn't make those other things not worship. It just makes a unique kind of worship taking place when we gather together. Does that make sense? And that's why the emphasis in the confession is especially on those assemblies. Notice they don't say daily in each family and privately by each individual. Don't deliberately neglect those. No. He says don't neglect assemblies. That's Hebrews 10. Because God in his word of providence calls us to them. But here's the million dollar question at the end of that paragraph. 
Concerning these public assemblies, where does God in His Word and Providence call us to them? We've seen what we're to do when we come together, but when are we to come together? And that leads us to the last two paragraphs, the day of worship. And we're going to see two things. In paragraph 7, we're going to see defining the day. And in paragraph 8, we're going to consider what it looks like to keep the day. There's some exceptions and some qualifications that deserve to be made. There's also some things that I want to say before we dive into it. First of all, this is a part of the confession where all of us need to be really careful to avoid doing theology from our own biographies. This is one of those things, perhaps this whole chapter is, where you go, nobody's ever taught me this. I've never heard this before. I've just always taught the Sabbath an old covenant thing. Or I've just always assumed that in the church, as long as we're not disobeying a command, we can do whatever we want when we gather. And all of this might be ruffling your feathers just a little bit. Well, listen, your biography does not have primary or ultimate authority over what it is over your piety and practice. God's Word alone does. And so that means that all of us, for as long as we live on this side of the resurrection, are constantly conforming and reforming ourselves according to that sound doctrine revealed in the Scriptures. And that may be true for some of us today. And so if you're one, perhaps in the back of your mind, that's like, whoa, I've been waiting for Pastor Jeff to get to this because I'm ready to take a swing at that softball. I would ask you just to slow down, humble yourself, consider whether or not this is found in the Scriptures, and consider whether or not godly and faithful saints through the centuries were rigorous in aiming to be faithful to the Scriptures. We're not alone in that regard. You realize that, don't you? That we're not alone wise. We're not the apex Christian generation that alone is figuring out the Scriptures. Faithful saints have gone before us and have been diligent like Bereans to study and divide the Scriptures in such a way that they might be able to summarize them in helpful ways like we see in the Confession. And so we need to avoid perhaps our own pride that's unwilling to change if necessary. We need to avoid perhaps doing theology from our biography. Well, I've never been taught that. I've never heard that, so it can't be true. Oh, those are the kinds of postures that will undermine the work of God's Spirit through God's Word in our life. And so I'd ask you to consider these things. Paragraph 6. We're going to see, or paragraph 7 rather, we're going to see in defining the day, is there a particular day that God calls His people to gather? We're going to see, first of all, that there is in this paragraph a summary of a moral or a natural law found in Scripture, as well as a positive command, and we're going to have to go into that. I've already done it before, but we'll do it by way of review. Number one, it is the law of nature that in general a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. Now when we, as we learned earlier in our study of confession, anytime we talk about a law of nature, it is that law written upon men's hearts, all those who come from Adam, instituted by God at creation. As such, it is true for all men everywhere, and they owe God their obedience perfectly, permanently, and perpetually. That's what the law of nature means. And what it's saying specifically here is that law is that there is a portion of time that should be given to the worship of God. 
That's the general principle. But then we're going to see on top of that principle are laid positive commands. So then it says, by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. This is really important. We have to be able to distinguish between that moral and natural law and that positive law. We've done this before, but I'm going to repeat it. The natural or the moral law concerning the day is that perpetually binding principle of setting aside time for worshiping God and that God alone has the authority to institute when that time is. It's that perpetually binding principle of setting aside time for the worship of God. The positive law, however, is that particular day of the week on which time for worshiping God is set aside. Meaning that there's nothing inherently moral about one day over another, though there is something inherently moral about the setting side of time for the worship of God. You say, well, how do we know that? Because that's what we're going to spend an eternity doing. It could not be otherwise. But when we do it, well, that's not inherently moral. It only becomes a command when God makes it in the context of a covenant. And so he makes it here in his covenant with Adam and all of creation. He's going to narrow it specifically with additional positive laws to Israel through Moses. And then after the resurrection of Christ, what we're going to see is that he's going to transform it. From the last day to the first day, the day of our Lord's resurrection. Follow along with me. We're going to see two things in this positive command. We're going to see its foundation, that is from creation to Christ, and then we're going to see its abrogation and transformation, that is from Christ to the new creation. Two great epics, from creation to Christ, from abrogation, or from Christ to the new creation. We have that which is concerning a creation ordinance transformed after Christ into a new creation ordinance. Does that make sense? Maybe not, but let's dive in. Number one, we see, first of all, from the beginning of the world, see Genesis 1 and 2, to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed day was the last day of the week. And so at creation, God established the moral principle of setting aside time for his worship, and he added a positive pattern to it that is on the seventh day of the week. We see that in Genesis 2, 1, and 3. We want to look at the scriptures. I don't just want to tell you. I want to show you. Genesis 2, 1, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. But he's not the only one. He didn't just, it wasn't just for him Ultimately, it was for man, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now notice that chapter 2 comes before chapter 3. That, the, that what he has instituted or ordained here in verse 3 of chapter 2 comes before sin has corrupted all things. And yet after sin corrupts all things, Genesis chapter 4 verse 3, we see that in the course of time or literally at the end of days, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
It was something that was known to Adam. It was something that was known and passed on from Adam to his own sons, such that is the end of days, the last day of the week, we might presume, that they brought set aside time for the worship of God. And so we have a creation ordinance that was not abrogated when sin came into the world, but continued on after that. If you remember back to when we studied chapter 19, I'm not going to spend time here. We also saw, for instance, that in Exodus chapter 5, Moses demands that Pharaoh let Israel go out and worship. And Pharaoh uses the same word to repeat what Moses said that is used for rest in Exodus 20. You're going to send them out and they're going to rest. So Moses says, send them out to worship. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to send them out to Sabbath. Later on in Exodus 16, before the giving of the law to Israel through Moses, before the law had, before the covenant had been ratified, God gives manna to eat. And he tells them, on the sixth day, gather twice as you can. On the seventh day, you're not to gather anymore. Nobody goes, what is he talking about? That there was already knowledge about it. Sinai was merely taking that moral principle established at creation and then adding positive commands to it for Israel's sake in the context of the Old Covenant. And that's what we see in Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's the first word that we see there? What's the heart of the command? Remember. Why does he say remember? Because it's something that God had instituted all the way back at creation. Well, how do we know that? Because it uses the exact same language as Genesis 2. The Lord God... Uh, set it aside, sanctified it, made it holy. So you remember it. Keep it holy because that's what God's instituted at creation. And then it says, six days you'll labor and do all your work. On the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant. Now we're getting into those positive laws that are specifically applied to Israel under the old covenant. But the moral principle itself still undergirds the fourth commandment. There is time to be set aside for the proper worship of God as God prescribes. In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So therefore remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So here's the question. One main objection to the perpetuity, to the ongoing validity of the fourth commandment was, no, God gave the Sabbath command to Israel through Moses. It belonged only to Israel. But as we've already seen that the Sabbath was already woven into the natural law of creation, beginning in Genesis 2. We see it again in Genesis 4. We see it in Exodus 5. We see it in Exodus 16. It pops up either inferentially or explicitly in a number of places before Moses speaks a single word concerning the covenant that God makes with them. And so that God has set aside specific time for his worship, and that worship was the seventh day, was surrounded. That positive law of the seventh day had added to it other positive laws in the Mosaic administration that they were to keep. Those things were symbolic of them as God's covenant people, such that to break the Sabbath and to break all of these posited laws 
Attached to this appropriate time of worship was to break covenant with God. But all of these positive things, they were types and shadows of what was yet to come. They were pointing forward to something, anticipating something greater. They were anticipating Christ, the one in whom we would enter God's rest, the one who would be for us our rest, but not just Christ, but also his church, that his new creation, his temple, whereby through his spirit, Christ would dwell with us and we would enjoy him forever. It is a type and a shadow of things to come. And that's why you see it in promissory form in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. Notice it says, If you turn your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. What is he talking about? I've got a few things that I want to address there. First of all, isn't this the Old Testament? Isn't this something that was given to Israel? Is, is Isaiah even talking to New Covenant Christians? How are we to think about this? Well, notice that there's three promises that are adjoined here. Verse 14 at the beginning, first promise is this, unsurpassed communion with God that you take delight in the Lord. Promise number two, victory over enemies. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Third promise, end of verse 14, enjoyment of salvation's blessings. So the question is, do all these promises still apply? Now the objection is, well, it's in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't apply to us anymore. But isn't it interesting that when it comes to creation ordinances, we don't make the same argument about marriage or gender or work but we conveniently make the same argument about setting aside appropriate time for the worship of God as God intends. But secondly, consider the context of Isaiah 58. The entire section of Isaiah refers ultimately to Christ in the new covenant. This is the new creation context of Isaiah's preaching. He's preaching to Israel. Yes, that's true, but he's preaching about God's promises yet to be fulfilled in Christ of the inauguration of a new creation whereby obedience will be brought about in his people that Israel could never accomplish or do under the old covenant. Well, how do we know that? Well, notice, for example, that Isaiah 56 includes, previously Isaiah 56, it includes eunuchs. Isn't that interesting? Verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, and I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And so eunuchs, according to Isaiah's prophecy, are enjoying the privileges promised in the gospel era, that is, in the time of Reformation when Christ comes. They were outside of the covenant, under the old covenant, but Christ is bringing them in. 
And so this whole section is a new covenant section. But notice the conditions of the promise in verse 13. In order to receive the promises of 14, that is, unbroken communion with God, victory over enemies, namely sin and Satan especially, and of feeding us on Christ with the gospel, nourishing us, strengthening us. In order to receive these, you have to meet the conditions spelled out in verse 13. In other words, in order to enjoy the promises, you have to have a proper regard for the Sabbath. Notice negatively, first of all, he says, do not profane the Sabbath, verse 13. But then he says positively, call it a delight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Enjoy it. Delight in it. And how do we do that? Well, he says here in verse 13, you do not go your own way. Now that can mean two things. It could mean going your own way is meaning your sinful ways. If you look back at Isaiah 53 verse 6, that's how it's meant by Isaiah there. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. How can we profane the Sabbath? By loving our sin. Or it could mean any activities of life in general. Look at Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways, all his ways of life, everything that he does, level. And he'll build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now here he's talking about his holy servant, or he's talking about Cyrus, the one who would raise up as a type of Christ. But going back to chapter 58, I know I'm taking the long way around. These are the two interpretations that have ultimately informed the entire Reformed tradition and, and, and created diversity in, in what exactly it is that we understand about the Sabbath. Is there a Sabbath to be kept under the New Covenant? Yes. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? We'll get to that in just a minute, but that's in the view of Isaiah 58. The main point that I'm wanting to make is that just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us. There are all kinds of promises through types and shadows that are fulfilled in Christ and in the church. But when Christ comes, we see that all those Old Testament positive ceremonial and civil aspects of, the, of, of God's Sabbath ordinance passes away, and it's transformed in Christ. Notice this in the, in the, in the confession. After the resurrection of Christ, it was changed from the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. This day is to be kept to the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath since the observance of the last day of the week has been abolished. Here's what we see. In the Gospels, in Luke 24 and Mark 16, we see that Christ explicitly was raised on the first day following the Jewish Sabbath. We see in Luke 24 and also in John 20 that Christ met with His disciples on the first day. This is amazing. Go to John chapter 20. I want you to see this. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Glance down at verse 19. And on evening of that day, the same day that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, the first day of the week, 
the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them. So Jesus appears to Mary on the first day. Jesus comes and communes with his disciples on the first day. And then inexplicably, he leaves and he disappears for seven or for an entire week. Where does he go? Nobody knows. The Gospels are silent. But then notice he appears again. When? Verse 26, eight days later, that is on the first day of the next week, he appears and gathers with his people again. Are you picking up on a pattern? You picking up what John's throwing down? Pretty amazing, isn't it? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them. And he communed with them, and he encouraged them, and he strengthened them. Earlier, he ate with them. And so it seems that Christ is setting a pattern of meeting with his people on the first day of the week. Let's not stop there, though. We see that following this, the apostolic church, no doubt following the experiences that the disciples had in that week following Christ's resurrection, also met on the first day. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. You can look there with me. Put your eyes on it. These are good things to see. Maybe you'll never unsee it. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Did I get that right? No. Verse 7. There we go. Not 27. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, break bread I take to mean throughout Acts and elsewhere as enjoying the Lord's Supper together, Paul talked, intending to depart. He preached for a long time. Eutychus falls out a window, but the whole church is gathered together on the first day. Why? Because not only is that when Christ's disciples meet together, that's when Jesus meets with his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, still concerning the public worship of the church, he says, when you come together, bring your gifts on the first day. What's he assuming? When the whole church gathers together, when Jesus meets with us on that day, the first day, bring your gifts for the maintenance of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. That is when we bring. So we see Christ meeting with his disciples on the first day. We see the apostolic church meeting together on the first day, and Christ no doubt meeting with them through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then we see in Revelation chapter 1, John saying that he was caught up to do what? To meet with Christ on the Lord's day, on the same day that he met with Christ following the resurrection, no doubt. And that's where we get the phrase, the Lord's day. It's his day to appoint as he pleases for the good of his people. And so here we see that Moses is abrogated. Romans 14, let no one cast judgment on you because you think one day is, is better than the other. In other words, in the context of Romans 14, for those whose consciences still feel bound to the obedience of the ceremonial law handed to Moses, listen, don't judge him, pray for him, give him the gospel, but they're aiming to obey God, and so don't cast judgment on him. Also in Colossians chapter 2, says, no one cast judgment on you with relation to Sabbaths. The word there is plural. And the whole context of that, that section of Colossians 2 is all about, ultimately, the ceremonial law. That has the appearance of godliness, but it's powerless to stop the indulgence of the flesh. That's what the Mosaic Law wasn't able to do. That's why you need Christ. 
And so here we're talking about the abrogation of those ceremonial laws, all those positive laws that attach themselves to that moral principle founded at creation, now transformed in Christ. Don't go back there. That's the language of Hebrews. You have something better in Christ. Don't go back to Moses. But what do we have in Christ? That in Christ we, he has entered ahead of us and, and has secured our rest going into the holy places before us. That we're able to enter into that holy place through the blood of Christ, but we see in Hebrews chapter 4, a Sabbath rest remains. It's interesting. In that verse 9, the, uh, the author uses a different Greek word for rest over and over and over and over again. And then one time in Hebrews 4, 9, he uses the word uh, sabbatismas, specifically saying that a Sabbath rest, that it remains. What do we mean by Remains. It means that while that whole chapter is anticipating the entering of God's rest through Christ at the end of the age, that rest has already been inaugurated for God's people now. There is an already and a not yet component to rest in Christ. And the not yet component instituted in this age on this side of the resurrection is that that Sabbath principle, the setting aside of a time for the public worship of God, has been transformed from the seventh to the first day in accordance with Christ's resurrection, whereby he is the first fruits of a new creation, and has inaugurated the community and the worship that his people are going to enjoy for eternity. So we call the first day of the week a Christian Sabbath, but more helpfully because it's the language the New Testament uses, the Lord's Day. Just a handful of quotes. C.F. Keel's helpful Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, and after the completion of his work, he also rested on the Sabbath. But he rose again on the Sabbath, and through his resurrection, which is the pledge to the world of the fruit of his redeeming work, he made this day the Lord's day for his church, to be observed by it till the captain of its salvation shall return, and having finished the judgment upon all his foes to the very last, shall lead it to the rest of that eternal Sabbath which God prepared for the whole creation through his own resting after the completion of heaven and earth. We one day look forward to entering his rest, and between now and then, his rest has been inaugurated both spiritually, but also covenantally as we gather together as his church in the world, anticipating and looking forward to entering the rest where Jesus is. B.B. Warfield, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him, and he brought the Lord's day out of the grave on resurrection morning. He transformed it. Charles Spurgeon, unless you think Baptists can't believe this, our Lord has lifted the Sabbath from the old and rusty hinges whereon the law had placed it long before and set it on the new golden hinges which his love has fashioned. He has placed our rest day not at the end of the week of toil, but at the beginning of the rest which remains for the people of God. Every first day of the week we should meditate on the rising of our Lord and seek to enter into the fellowship with him in his risen life. And so when we talk about the Lord's day, what we talk about is the transformation of that Sabbath principle and the changing of a positive law that's not inherently moral by the covenant maker from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And yet that's the day appointed by God and no other day where his people are to gather and to worship him and give themselves to the worship and service of God. Finally, paragraph 8, we'll go quickly through this. 
we see two things, preparation and observation. And all of this is rooted, if you notice the proof text in Isaiah 58, 13. That it's to be kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. And then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and duties of necessity and mercy. We see three things in the latter part of that paragraph. We see what does keeping the day look like? It looks like rest. It looks like worship. And it looks like acts of necessity and mercy. Now, as I referred to in Isaiah 58, 13, what exactly is meant by rest? Is it resting, as the paragraph says here, from all secular employments and recreation and the giving of the whole time to public and private acts of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy? That would be taking the Isaiah 45 view of all your ways. Heidelberg, also within the broader Reformed tradition, takes the latter view, the Isaiah 50 three view of all your ways, that we're not to refrain, for instance, from all of our work and all of our recreation. Those are truths that are, or those are propositions difficult to establish in the New Testament. But what are we to? Well, notice what Heidelberg says. In the first place, God wills that the ministry of the gospel in schools be maintained and that I, especially on the day of rest, diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian alms. Notice he's using all the first day language from the New Testament. These are, he's cobbling together what the Christians in the New Testament did. In the second place, that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works. Each one went their own way. And allow the Lord to work in me by his spirit and thus begin in this life the everlasting Sabbath. And so there have been two dominant views among the Reformed tradition, among Protestants in particular, but especially Reformed tradition. That is those that we might call the continental tradition that we see articulated here in Heidelberg. That it's not calling for a complete ceasing of, of every possible work and all recreation. Is it sin to go enjoy after church a good ultimate Frisbee game with fellow sins to the glory of God? Well, some of, the, some of our Puritan friends, as we see articulated in paragraph 8, would say, yes, it is. You can do that other six days of the week. This one day from the beginning to the end is to be given entirely to the worship of God, to prayer, and to acts of necessity and worship. Heidelberg says, no, not so much. And I'm just going to lay my cards on the table six days out of the week I'm with Heidelberg because I just don't think that the total abstinence of all work, all recreation for the whole day where nothing is given except uh, for public and private worship can be established in the New Testament. And I think there's legitimate exegetical grounds to interpret Isaiah 58 differently. Now, I'm open to being persuaded Lots of men who are much more godly than me and understand their Bibles better than I do would disagree with me on that. And in humility, I just want to continue to study the Scriptures to the best of my ability. But I am utterly persuaded that there is a particular day that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, has set aside for His people. Except it's not that old Jewish Sabbath. At the end of the seventh day, it has been transformed according to His resurrection in keeping with a new creation now on the first day of the week. And we set aside that first day of the week to gather together as a church to worship the Lord. And that is the keeping 
of the fourth commandment.